0: What time is it, you wonder? Well, it's time for Drinks with Tony on KPCRLP Santa Cruz 101.9 FM. Bum 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 sound. Tony Duchesne here. Welcome to episode 142 of Drinks with Tony with my guest Claire Phillips. She's the author of a new book, A Room with a Darker View. Chronicles of my mother and schizophrenia. Enjoy the show.
1: Hi, I'm Claire Phillips, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony.
0: Tony You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Claire Phillips. She's the author of the memoir, A Room with a Darker View. Claire, how are you?
1: I'm well, thank you. I'm trying to keep in the spirit of Tony with drinks, and I told you I, I have a very refined glass of white wine. Somebody um, came over this weekend and brought a lovely bottle. And so, well, I'm tasting it.
0: And speak. it's good. What kind of what's the what's the uh, what's the wine title? Oh, well, gosh. It's
1: so <laughs> fancy! You know, I never drink white wine either. So I have to look in the refrigerator to tell you. And, you know, we're at home on Zoom. So we can. And it's, uh, I don't know, a Pasano Rio de los, los Pajaros. What I hear those?
0: great things about that one.
1: You've heard of this? No, I haven't. <laughs> yeah, I don't know anything about, you know, white wine. Yeah. I, just, I you know, what's on sale.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's just like, oh, the grape juice, but, but, but it makes me feel weird. Okay.
1: Yes, take it, <laughs> take it. I know.
0: But then what you should do is you stick your pinky in the air as you drink, and then people think you know everything about wine. So that's the important thing is how we look while we're drinking, not the taste or anything else.
1: Well, it tastes good. I will just say
0: that sounds good. Um, Hey, you know, the the, you deal with heavy themes here, and usually I'm not in. Yeah, I'm no, I'm totally into heavy themes. Don't get me (laughs) wrong, but uh, you know, I'm also a goofy buffoon when we're doing a podcast. So, um, but the, I mean, the uh, can can you walk me through a little bit about your mom's uh, schizophrenia? Can can we start serious and then we'll just start uh, yucking it up?
1: Let me preface this by saying my mother's name was Joy. I knew very early on that life was a dark, ironic tragedy because uh, my mother didn't experience Joy very much. She did laugh a lot. That comes up in the book. But basically, you know, my mother was uh, kind of um, Jewish, raised uh, until about age 11 in uh, what is now Zimbabwe, then Rhodesia. Uh, Her father was a medical scientist who worked on subtropical diseases and really changed the landscape of how um, medicine was practiced in in Rhodesia then basically whites didn't care what happened to Africans if they um, got illnesses and they, and white people weren't afflicted by them they didn't they didn't practice medicine associated with it her father changed that started looking at illnesses that African children suffered from and focused a lot on that. Well, anyway, that's a. We'll get back to that. But he sent her. Are you
0: avoiding the question? I'm I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Sorry, I'm I'm so so
1: digressive. Anyway, he sent her to boarding school in in England. And so she really didn't grow up with her parents and she developed her first psychotic break was in college at Oxford in the late 1950s. She had electroshock. Her doctor father came running to the rescue. Purportedly, she was doing worse with each application of this treatment. He he stopped them. He took care of her. She got better. He told my father, at least according to my father, that she would never get sick like this again. It was related to a, a fad, a diet fad and and finally, she was studying for law. And, you know, that and this really-
0: is in the 1950s. So it's this is still kind of the archaic years of, um, you know, yes. it, it's back in the day with uh, when you're like, oh, wait, you you want to you want to have sex with the same sex as you. Then let's just stick you in a room because we got to we got to we got to get this mental disorder taken care of. It was the leeches uh, psychology, psychiatry days.
1: Yes so so we just we didn't really before this the it was um torture how they treated people the ECT was torture um the lobotomies were torture the insulin coma treatment was torture i was just rereading again this morning about how they literally had cases you know before the 18th century where they believed that um if you dumped people in water and 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 then you you shocked them into getting better by just Lifting them out of the water right when the bubbles started to surface, um, and so they tried to basically simulate near-death experiences to shock people out of mental health illnesses. And it really goes back a long way, you know, the biological versus the religious look at you're possessed, blah blah blah. Um, the Greeks were better at dealing with it being potentially a medical problem than than many other cultures. So yes, by the even though we had passed over from, from deeming this a possession. Um, my, my mother's in my mother's day in the late fifties, there still wasn't much treatment. Neuroleptics had just started. And, you know, the, the, my mother's story that I, you know, the irony is not only was she named joy, but my mother had a very dark sense of humor. So what I wanted to say is don't worry, we can laugh. My mother would be laughing.
0: Um, will <laughs> enjoy she, the podcast.
1: <laughs> yeah she liked, she liked very dark, uh, ironic things. So, um, yeah, I, I, sadly, in those days, they didn't know a lot about it. And also, I think my mother's story, every, every type of schizophrenia is different. Everybody's experiences of, of it is different. My mother had a very, there's something called the prodomal phase, where it's a very long, latent phase between when you have full-blown psychosis and... Um, symptoms. And it's sort of in the background. And I think for my mother, she got well quickly and it was in the background and she was a quiet woman married to a brilliant scientist who may have had Asperger's. He probably didn't notice. that she was very, they were both, I think, narrow atypical.
0: Hmm. So
1: they got along, they were smart. They were in their own world. If my mother was alone in her bedroom quietly with whatever was going on in her mind he wasn't interested or worried he was at work so
0: and she may have even thought that everyone else had the same you know you know how you think you assume everyone else is it's just like oh we all have this uh bloody migraine at 4 p.m and then you find out not everyone does and you know wait a second maybe i gotta take care of this
1: Yes, exactly. I think that makes a lot of sense. Why would she think there was something wrong? No. no, uh, Why would she think she's that different from anyone else? Although that psychotic break in college told both her and my father something, which they didn't really deal with. So a lot of the um, book is about sort of growing up with this nebulousness of my mother's condition, one that was never spoken of, one that was never treated, but got exponentially worse as she went back to work. And, and and also one of the myths, I think, that I tried to upend in this book, I, is that um, it was just you know what the anti-psychiatrists say, which is a, a sensitive person's response to a mad world. No, not true. My mother had a lot of economic stability. Yes, the world was really unfair to women in her profession. Yes, her husband may have been um, carrying on certain affairs, uh, you know, when he was off at, 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 at work or at the bar afterwards, who knows what he was doing. But um, those things don't always drive people into a paranoid psychosis. Right. So.
0: Well, so have... I guess you're not Scientologist.
1: Oh, do the Scientologists are also <laughs> very anti-psychiatry. Right?
0: Well, the, yeah, yeah. And Tom Cruise got in a bunch of hot water about 10 years ago when um I think it was Brooke Shields was talking about post-mortem depression. And he's just like, no, she doesn't need, she doesn't need the psych. Uh, there is no depression. As long as you get clear, blah, blah, blah. And then, and then his publicists were like, dude, we're trying to sell a movie. Can you like, just bring it down a notch?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, and I, I have, you know, students and readers who will ask me, Oh, well, was your mother really undone by, by, you know, her social circumstances and, Actually, no. I mean, I think Ellen Sachs's book, The Center, um, what is it? The Center That Holds. I'm going to get this wrong, which is so embarrassing. Let me just look it up quickly. Oh, Getting
0: It getting it Wrong is a feature of this podcast. Okay, good. Yeah. Um,
1: we're,
0: we're good at getting I mean, it
1: wrong. It's like the easiest quotation here that it's based on. I should The center cannot hold, right? It cannot. Um, you know, I didn't want to, uh, for me also, because my mother's situation was so difficult by the time she did Finally, get treatment after she broke down and was catatonic in an airport near catatonic and was taken in against, you know, she was committed. Uh, she got treatment for the first time. She refused it. She was a lawyer, she was a public defender, a criminal defense lawyer. So um, she really knew how to keep quiet, how to take care of herself, and uh, refused to get treatment um, until she finally broke down.
0: And, uh, and that, I mean, that kind of makes, well, here's, here's what I, what I would think it makes sense because she, the, she probably doesn't feel like anything's as wrong as people are saying. And she doesn't, she, if she addresses it, that might bring her to a, she may be scared to go to a worse place if it's addressed. Yeah.
1: Yes, exactly. And she never, you know, my parents were both from sort of mid century post-World war II England. They really never talked about their feelings. Um, and You know, sometimes that could be good. You know, they would just deal with things. But I think she she was probably terrified. I mean, when I read about all of these prior treatments, people were tortured. And even Ellen Sachs talks about in her book being, you know, uh, restrained in in a cruel and terrifying manner. I'm being netted, netted. And how many and she also gave the statistics of how many people die in um, psychiatric colds. Uh, and we know now that specifically people of color, uh, Black, Indigenous people of color, are really, um, you know, in harm's way when they call the police if they're having any kind of mental health crisis. So it's a very dangerous situation to be in. And I was always really horrified. The only way we could ever get my mother help, we, my brother would call 911, get the police over there. They would. I don't even know if they broke down the door, if she answered it for him and they would haul her away. I don't know how they treated her. She ne- I never asked her because I didn't want to embarrass her and make her remember something that was painful. I wasn't sure she remembered. So it, it was really devastating to have your family member treated that way.
0: You know, it's the my dad had a nervous breakdown when he was 37. And, uh, and, and they had me when I was a teenager. So I was, you know, I was thinking I was around 19 at the time. And, um, then I, then I was turning 37 and I was in therapy at the time and I was really scared that I was going to have an, uh, that I was going to repeat it. Did you, did you, did you, any of those fears come into you sometimes? That's, you're,
1: that's very powerful. Yeah. I think that's really important. And that's why it's so important for people to know their health history. Very young. I was very mad at my mother, my mother and i were kind of adversaries from the time i was 3 years old you know when i went to the hospital when my brother was born it's in the book i asked she had a thermometer in her mouth and i said mommy are you sick and she burst out laughing and she said oh yes yes i am and i just just didn't want anything to do with her after that and um i so and you're probably
0: I, really into it cuz kids are so intuitive so you probably knew there was a larger problem and you just saw the thermometer and it was so yeah
1: Yes. And she knew, and I knew, and I think she thought she was getting one over on all of us. I really don't know what's going on in her mind, but she was, that terrified me. And so I was so committed to being nothing like her. I would spend a lot of time imagining my mind and my brain and creating hemispheres for myself where there was like the fantastic and there was reality. And I was convinced that I would never step over that line. And I knew my mother was every day stepping over that line. I didn't know it was an illness. I just knew she stepped over it. And I used to promise and vow to myself, I will never step over that line. Now that's wishful thinking because it really wasn't my mother's will, you know, her willfulness uh, to not live in reality that brought her that, that I think it was just, you know, her neurons were, you know, were being over pruned or something, some neurological developmental issue. Um, so it could have happened to me. It happens and it could, and there's late onset disease. So it's not talked about enough, but to be afraid that that could come over you at 37 is not an an, an unfounded fear. It's just, I, I think I created a way, maybe that's part of why I fought with my mother so violently because maybe I needed to separate myself from her as a way to sort of create this false sense that that would never happen to me. So oh,
0: interesting, yeah,
1: yeah. So I mean, I've had my own like I'm probably slightly manic depressive, you know, like where I have my like up ups and my down downs and
0: yeah.
1: down. But I sleep and I don't hallucinate, you know. Whenever anybody wants to give me acid or mushrooms, I kind of like. I don't I really, in my family, we just, we don't want to hallucinate. And,
0: and so how often do people offer you acid and mushrooms? Is this a <laughs> daily occurrence?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but recently it's come back up and I'm like, um, I can't really do that. You know, um, I,
0: I can't do it either. People like go, Hey, you know, you would do really good if you did, if you just tripped out on shrooms and I'm like, I don't know, man. <laughs> I'm like, hey. I'm so sensitive to like life. I it's do I really need to heighten those senses even more?
1: No, and I'm like already living in. I mean, I say that I wasn't like my mother and creating. Oh, I I didn't create whole fantastic worlds for myself, but I live on the edge of something, right? Otherwise, I would oh. not be in this creative field. So, yeah, I don't need it. I say if you really need a change. A, you know a mental change i don't you know take a nap and then maybe you'll have some fabulous dream
0: people have no idea about the great drug of naps <laughs> and i I, could, I found them cheaply too they're very easy to get on the street so
1: that's right that's yeah. right and they do they do all this and you don't have a hangover and you don't have to worry that you end up in some you know place you don't want some hospital you don't want to end up in my brother once when he was 19 because of the trauma of this family life and caring for my mother and not really ever getting any care himself. He smoked pot one day and he, he, he was stoned for like a month, like it never went away. And -hmm. he had to drop out of school. He had to go get a therapist. Um, Actually, I encouraged him. What really helped was I encouraged him to go to my tarot card reader in San Mm -hmm. Francisco. Her name was um, Uma and Uma pointed to the worry card and she said, you're worrying about being, you're worrying about being mentally ill, you're not ill, you're worried about it. And then it went away for him. Huh? But he broke down, de- you know, he had that, it can trigger stuff sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so depending on yes, your background, um, your biology, you may not want to participate in all of that, you may not need it.
0: So, uh, so your brother care gave to your mom a lot. Uh, and then you did in later life. Is that the? Yeah, it was
1: kind of like by the time my brother had by the time my brother had a child and then was divorced and single, he really didn't have all this extra time to manage my mother's. A divorced, I, divorce,
0: divorce yeah. and children take up a lot of time. They don't tell you that when you go get married and before you have a kid. It's it's not in the manual.
1: No. So if you're a single parent, you know, you've got, you've got a lot of when, especially when they're really young. And so, so by then I was a bit more stable. It took me a long time. One of my friends said to me, I think you chose to be not very stable. So you wouldn't have to take care of your mother. Like you're out of that, you're out of that role. I don't, completely think so. But yes, huh. I never wanted to be the caregiver of my family. And I didn't really have the natural proclivities like my brother. So um, I kind of pitched in at that point. Um, and uh, I found out all these things I had no idea about. I didn't know my mother had, um, I didn't understand the, 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 the months of torment that she had to endure my brother had to endure and in the ins- in and the horror of dealing with insurance companies that kick you off despite having a million dollars worth of insurance like it's just yeah. you know and they both have legal minds and i don't so they could manage that stuff but for me that's really pretty overwhelming
0: the insurance thing is atrocious i i've i had to fight myself to um for therapy and getting coverage and stuff for for about 15 years with a uh, blue, blue shield. And I had to, I had to learn the laws of healthcare because nobody on the phone is advocating for you. And I would get to the top supervisors, yeah. and then they don't have communication to the department that's above them. So they're like, this is all we can do. This is what we have. And I'm pointing out laws and going, okay, this, this, and this. So this is going to come back to you as a class action lawsuit. And they're just, they're like, what? And so, and then I ended up getting a lot of money back through a class action lawsuit. <laughs> but I'm just That's like,
1: incredible. but at the
0: same time, it's just like, I needed the help six years ago, you know, and then, and I had to fight you this much. And then I had to put all that, all of my healthcare on credit cards. And, that, and so it's, uh it, I learned a lot. It really blows my mind how just scheming and awful these companies are that, you know, they have the beautiful commercials of like, we can give you erectile dysfunction uh, pills, you know, and you're just sitting there going, "You all you guys are trying to do is just not pay because it's cheaper to have a class action lawsuit and have people go ahead and just deteriorate. That's it's
1: just a terrible and to think like right now, England is the, the elected officials in England have persuaded their populace to vote for getting an american privatized system of health care they think somehow it's going to be better for them i mean they're and and they've adopted the, the well model. maybe
0: maybe their dental will be a bit, will be better
1: we are you but you can't there is no dental in this country no and, no
0: in, in england they all have crooked teeth right that was that was yeah, that was a day of the teeth. english
1: in america we don't even have teeth right my neighbors were telling me they were thinking of, um, you know, uh, retiring to Alabama. You know, I live in Altadena, and they were thinking of retiring with family in Alabama and they took a trip across country. They said, Oh, wow. It's like a third world country. No one has teeth out there. And I think it's, you know, we call, you know, the stereotype is everybody's a meth head, but you know, nobody has dental insurance and we can't afford, if you can't afford $400 worth of extra costs you know a a bill um of four hundred dollars is going to throw you off um how are you going to pay for a thousand dollars worth of dental care
0: yeah and uh, a guy that i used to write with and i forget his name he was a great writer too but he wrote a he wrote a cool article i think it was a series of articles of dental vacations to mexico because he was another writer too who didn't have dental insurance and had to get stuff taken care of and would go to Mexicali, and he would just get his surgeries done and get a little a place to stay while he was healing down there and then come back. Yeah. That, that's what we're at. People used to go on vacations. Now we go places so we can get um, our health taken care of, <laughs> um, have a few days to get right. back to normal and then go back to the same grind.
1: Yeah. I think that's a GQ expose if I've ever heard one. Right. But
0: the new- I don't think anyone cares. It's no one cares. <laughs> It's, well, it's,
1: well, you're either rich or you're no one, right? So, yeah. Or we get to look.
0: So we got to get rich. Well, this is the plan. I, I got the whole solution. We just need to be, we'll become wealthy in the next year. And then we don't have to worry about any of this.
1: Well, that's why people flip houses because like there's, there's just like, no, no one has a purpose. And the only thing they can imagine is just, you know, making a shit ton of money. Basically, there's just no other ethos and that doesn't work so it's yeah Yeah,
0: that's because people don't find their purpose you know i think that's the problem with like the world is people are not finding their purpose and and we're not set up to find our purpose it's i mean you know i grew up a jehovah's witness and i had all that crap but when i come out of it it's like oh wait the whole system is not set up for you to find a purpose the system's set up for you to be a worker and be subservient and have a lot of and to like make sure you're spending just almost just as much as you're earning. It's, it blows my mind. And then and people don't know. I, I had a friend of mine call, she, I, she calls me like once every three years if she has a breakdown, cause she's a, she's an ex Jehovah's witness. And, um, and so she finally got kicked out of the organization last year. So I got my one, you know, I got my phone call <laughs> from her, but I'm like, what do you want to do in life? And she's like, I don't know. She's in her fifties. She's like, I, she's like, I've never even thought of that. And I'm like, well, then she was like, it's too late. And I'm like, it's not too late. Relax, go take some classes. You know, it's just that we have to just, just find out it's in us. And if you just sit there and um, if you just sit there and kind of meditate on it and go, wait a second, that's why I like building cars because I'm mechanical. And I got and and then you start to move into what's important in your life. And I think we find it when we're really young, we just lose it. Whoa! The acid just kicked in. Sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah. If we're lucky, to, and that's you know, and I'm I'm gonna go back to my book because I just thought of, I have a neighbor who's in her fifties and she's so charming, but she hasn't found a purpose, has basically just done retail, but struggles at that, as you can imagine, to make a living in your fifties. Tried to get encourage her to go back to school, and I thought about it. I thought, you know, we both came from similar backgrounds where we had these very adversarial mothers. My mother, you know, and and I thought, why, you know, what is it about purpose, and why, why does has she no purpose or not interested in finding one? She's so bright and 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 charming and compassionate in in certain ways and i thought you know i got very lucky when i went to san francisco state and i worked for those women who ran their own bathhouse miracle baths and they were like lesbian like lipstick lesbians who like had their own alternative community and um you know, it was like right before AIDS. And, and then unfortunately a lot of people who worked there got sick and they participated in, in people's healthcare as best they could, you know, they gave me like, a, I had role models, people who were very independent and, and show something they believed in and, and saw something in me, whatever it was, you know, it was pretty minimal. I mean, it was also the faculty, I mean, the creative writing part program at San Francisco state that gave me opportunities and. Those kinds of things helped me stay on a road as bumpy as it may have been, as misguided as I may have been, as unskilled or unprepared to be in the world as I may have been in my 20s and even my early 30s. Um, I had mentors and that was lucky. It was because I was in a place like San Francisco that had such a burgeoning bohemian or alternative community, even this new agey stuff that, like, you know, Louise Hay kind of blamed people for their for AIDS, you know, they didn't have like the right outlook, these kinds of things that were really, you know, New Age isms, that whole kind of new age thing can be very flawed. Um but nonetheless, I was really lucky that I landed somewhere like that in my 20s, not having had certain, you know, I also felt kind of lucky too that because I, my family made me so angry with their inability to deal with reality, my mother's illness and other things. I, I refused to be a daddy's girl. So I sort of was not going to go the route that many of my private school friends went and just kind of barricade myself in a, in a world of, of, of privilege and white privilege in class and have no experience or connection to community outside of that. So and then, some-
0: that's, it's a, it's interesting. Cause that's, it's, it's like the bubble, the bubble thing is, is, is uh it's rough going. I mean, I, you know, I get it. You're, you're with your community and you don't, you don't stray from your community in a certain way.
1: Right. right. I feel like we have that in common with uh, confessions of a teenage Jesus jerk. And um my experience of, you know, sort of breaking out and, and having um, literature in an alternative community to turn to when you've been insulated in this little world. That's
0: yeah. Right. I, it's the only group of weirdos I, I, I understand is writers. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a good, it's like a great club to be in. I, if I'm working with students, you know, and some of them have a, some of them have a dream of fame and fortune and I'm like, you're in the wrong place. You got to go somewhere else. Uh, if you're in this for that, get out. Um, because you're, you're really not going to make a lot of money. It's going to, it's, 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 it's a rejection life. And, um, but at the same time, it's the greatest club to ever join. It's just like the, I'm with my weirdos and that's all I care about. I got the tribe, you know?
1: Exactly. And it's rich. And, um, if we're not competing over crumbs, cause basically our culture does not support, there are no grants for writers, you know, there are. Yeah. artists do better. There are better many more teaching positions for artists, many more grants for artists. Writers really, you know, it's, it's, like you said, it's really tough going and you might have 10 great years and um, I won't name names, but certain really celebrated authors of my generation would not be making a living if they didn't have a professorship. It's just not possible.
0: My writers retreat, my writers retreat, and my grants have been eat rice and beans for uh, two years. <laughs> it's just like just just bring the level of needs down to get what I need to do done, and then go. Oh, whew, okay, now I don't have to. It, that's that's how I get. That's how I've created my own <laughs> my own. Uh, what do you call it? Adjusting the the income. Right. Uh, Richard Hell. I, I interviewed Richard Hell, this the singer who is um like maybe 18 years ago. And he taught me one of the, cause that guy's a legend to me. He was, he's the king. He's the God of no wave. He had, you know, I'm just, I've knew, I've loved Richard hell ever since I've heard of him, you know, in the nineties. And I was just, and I got to interview him. I'm interviewing this God right in front of me. And I was asking, I was like, you gotta be making a lot of money on your music. And he's like, Oh, I don't make any money on my music. And I'm like, what? And he's written. Yeah. He's written two books. He's like, I live in the same apartment. In uh near Greenwich Village that I have since the 1970s, and my needs are low, and that's the only way I could be a writer. And I went, Oh, you know, I'm looking at him as you're Richard Hell, you're in a palatial penthouse flat. Oh, you know, and it's just like he then he told he kind of really set me straight. He's like, That's not how it is. My needs are low, so I can live this life. So because this is who I am.
1: Right. And, you know, this reminds me of like, you know, other authors who've made like Sarah Manguzo. I know she's like, well, just wear the same couple of outfits. If you're a writer, you can't afford to do anything else. And um, although I don't really live that way, I wish I did. And uh, Philip K. Dick, you know, who made some ridiculous amount of money. But of course, the the challenges of writing were so extraordinary. Right. He had to do all the speed. And that's why they do it. We know what how difficult and challenging it is to write book after book after book after book. He'd be writing one book, editing another one at the same time, not receiving royalties from these A-list publishers. It's shocking. They don't send your royalty checks. And um, living, like you say, on rice and beans. And that really, you know, that kind of lifestyle you know, landed him with a, you know, a heart condition and he died at 52 before he ever saw much of the wealth that would have come his way. And when I teach my science fiction writing classes, I I often start with a letter that he wrote to somebody He was asking, I think a lawyer or someone for some money or a reprieve on a bill. And it's, you know, it's, it's 2000 words of every ridiculous money-saving activity um required by him to survive and it's almost satire it's hilarious it's sad it's absurd and it's a reminder that hey this is how you're going to end up having to live and you're right it's do something else you might want to go into that fancy screenwriting game which you know has i mean tv writing is so exceptional these days when you say the writing the dialogue
0: Oh, it is. Uh, it's I mean, I'm kind of I've kind of been in a I've have a weird relationship with that game, you know, like, well, essentially, I haven't made that much money in that game. <laughs> that's my weird relationship. Well, but I, I um it's
1: also difficult. I mean, everybody's fighting, fighting for those plum positions.
0: And and that's the thing. So much of it gets corporatized. Mm-hmm. It's, it's I used to think, oh, I want to be staff on a TV show to get the health insurance right? And then I'm like, like, what the hell am I thinking? Because if you're staff on a TV show, you just have to mimic the voice of the showrunner. So essentially, it's just, it's almost like being one of Daniel Steele's ghostwriters. I don't know if she has ghostwriters or not, but it's almost like you're, you're a whore. I'm a whore. You know, it's, it's, but At the same time, it's a very
1: particular skill. And, and I agree, you know, it's funny when in my mid thirties or early thirties, I came back to Los Angeles and I was like, oh, I can't work for these pennies that I'm being paid to teach. It's really hard work and I'm not getting any money. I'm making less than 20,000 a year. Why am I doing this? I'm going to do something else. So I started, I started hanging out with my TV writer friends and I started writing pilots. And of course the pilot was based on my own a fantastic novella, the black market babies about triplets who are separated at birth, who reunite at San Francisco state during a budget crisis to discover they're all missing a pinky finger, which is how they were like connected.
0: Anyway, and it, and um, we could find that book.
1: Yes. It's well, it's, it's on Amazon. Probably okay. still. It's out there and, Good. Um, and, you know, they, they go on a romp a kind of crazy romp to find their real mother. Of course they never find their real mother, but they they have some wacky encounters. It's kind of like the late eighties, uh, San Francisco, or, you know, uh, it's got that kind of vibe. And, um, and the sisters are called Heather, Heather, Lavender and Iris. Right. So, um, I, I created an animated story based on that novella and I tried to shop it around and I actually got some like pitch and somebody offered me the opportunity to to write like a full season summary pitch. Of course I wasn't quite, quite ready for that, but, um, I I I and then I found like an agent someone who would be interested in working with me but they wanted spec scripts and I realized I couldn't write a Simpsons I couldn't I spent months alone in my room in, in it was like I think the longest writer's block I've ever had I bought books on how to write a comedic sketch i know that you need three jokes per page i did right. all of that nothing came out nothing and finally the day i realized i was never going to be a tv writer was a day i could start writing again it was just it was really a it, because i couldn't my my soul wasn't capable of it i could not mimic i i think it's a great talent to have i don't have it
0: right and that it, it's that's it's so funny because i tell my students cuz i'm teaching screenwriting now cuz i was teaching novel for a long time and then they're like you know a few years ago they're like hey look the the um what do you call it the enrollment's really low in novel writing you know and they kept wanting me to move to screenwriting at ucla extension and i'm like yeah no i'm i'm a novel guy i'm a novel guy and they finally went the enrollment's really lo- getting lower essentially we're going to have to let you go unless you start teaching screenwriting so i i was like kind of against it but now i embrace it and i love it to death so i'm glad i got in on it but i always but i always tell the students hey look it's hard and it sucks but find your find your truth in it find your find your soul to the story and get it in there and okay. that, and that's and that's how i try to do it too it's just like it has to mean something to me and if it doesn't i don't care you yeah. know that's great the simpsons okay. makes me laugh but if I'm gonna write a script for The Simpsons, <laughs> some heart needs to be in there from my heart, you know. But I, I, I wouldn't be. I, I watch The Simpsons now, and I'm like, this is, this isn't funny anymore. It's, it's 30 years. These people are just. It's a corporate job at that point. It's you might as well be pushing paper because it's. Let's do the same thing over and over and over again. And
1: is, is is terribly uh, enervating, you know, it just really saps you of, of all life for me, at least I found. So, yeah, and I was going to ask you, so teaching screenwriting, I mean, there's so many people, there's this one dramatic uh, theater, uh, uh, author uh, of teaching theater who I really liked, whose name, I think it was Eastern European, I'm blanking on right now. But is there like a uh, person is there a particular author whose book on teaching screenwriting you think is actually helpful and not just, you know,
0: um, them? a book? Well, so I I assigned Blake Snyder, the uh, Save the Cap, as as uh, as one of the books for the for uh, everyone to read. But I also let them know he's in that case. This <laughs> is <just> like he <laughs> he does a good job explaining things and he'll debunk stuff. But you know, learn his stuff but then kind of try to unlearn it too. But at the same time, you do have to stay within the structure and it's essentially the hero's journey. So I do, I do like, I encourage them to dive into Joseph Campbell and all that stuff. But, um, but in the, you know, in the end, no one cares. It's, it's just, it's hilarious. What uh, it's hilarious. And, and they, they go up the, it's a lot of these people go up the, go up the corporate ladder just like in a corporate job when they're like, Oh, okay. I'm a production assistant for five years. And then I get to be an assistant in uh, the writer's room for three years. And then I get to do this. And it's just like, what they're doing is they're teaching you how to suck. <laughs> it's just like, they're su- they're sucking all the creativity out of you. So by the time you get there, you're going to write the same thing they do. It just, right. It's like, it's like uh, SNL. And that's all, you know, that all, that's all been kind of Harvard graduates. You know, it's just like if you're from Harvard and you're a little weird, you can right. join this club uh, yeah. if you're, and you know all the, the, the talk show hosts. They're all from that. They're from a small little area, and mm-hmm. but they're not interesting to me at all. Craig Ferguson was interesting to me. I liked him. I I, I veered.
1: <laughs> well, do you think that's why we have this kind of you know plethora of podcasts that they're they're just this massive. um blossoming i mean it's just anywhere and everywhere and people have these massive followings do you think that the you know generation z and and some of the millennials are like okay we don't want this corporatized um talk it's so controlled it's all about stars it's all just they're all just shills for for the industry and they and instead they want to do their own thing which i think is so cool it's kind of like zines but like to the nth degree you know
0: yes a podcast is like a zine and i used to do zines when i was younger that's like what i mean those zines are amazing i, I if i go to a, if i go to a bookstore and they're they have zines on display i'll try to at least buy one even if it's not that great just because yeah the, the, the,
1: community.
0: Yeah, the zine culture changes everything um and there's people that came out of this. Like, I don't know if you know Aaron Comet Bus. He wrote the Comet Bus scene for many years. And he was out of Berkeley. And um he uh, he had multiple offers from major publishers to take him on. And he was just like, No, I'm I'm doing it my own way. I'm self-distributing, I'm self-publishing. And he's he did that, he's done that for decades. Will you put that in the chat? I don't know this guy, I should. <laughs> can
1: you put that in the chat? Do I sound like an old lady teacher? I am.
0: Okay. No, no, we're doing a podcast, but we actually have a chat that just cracked me up. I've never had that one. Yeah.
1: Can you put that in the chat? Please? Yeah. Thank yeah. you. That's like All right. that's so, what I get paid to say. Please, can you put that in the chat? Now So, so for chat. everyone
0: at home, I typed comment bus into the chat.
1: Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. But, but it's
0: um I don't know where I was going with that, but it's and at the same time, uh, are we self sabotaging ourselves? Are are we really that great that we that we shouldn't just go belong in a room in a TV writer's room somewhere? Maybe maybe I'm the problem. That's well, I, this is where I go back and forth. I, think, I don't I don't know. I
1: think there are really corporate TV. I mean, I absolutely agree. And then there are like, you know, I watch a show and I've got to think about which ones like where I'm like oh. I'm a little bit like there's so many, I just know with comparatively to the novel versus these rooms, they have maybe four or five people with very specific backgrounds and they can add like, I think succession is written by somebody with an ear to like what's going on in these elite um, jet setting classes. You know what I mean? You get, you get a Brett Easton Ellis only so often who like is really tuned to the ear of their culture. Um, But very often that, you know, they can have these very diverse casts that are very credible because they've got so many uh, they've got. They must have so many different writers of different walks of life. So I think, I think it has been really bad. But I think that maybe with the you know advent of these streaming platforms they're getting there's getting to be juicier and juicier stuff out there for someone i mean maybe they all still had to go to harvard i agree like (laughs) uh,
0: when i talk about harvard i'm talking about that that little elite top end everybody
1: knows that when i was in my third when i was in my early 30s and trying to learn this field which i so didn't belong in because i'd probably like duck if i was ever in a writer's room i just freeze if i have to be creative in a group i'm much better i'm alone that's why i do what i do right i feel free that way i don't feel free in a committee um but I, I was told then by my harvard graduate friend who was working for his harvard graduate friend everybody's from harvard it's just the feeder yeah and maybe that's changed maybe they're letting like brown in i don't know
0: that's funny <laughs> but well, at, this, at the do. same time there the we have we're in a juicy TV era where people are taking a lot more risks because of streaming. So it might, you know, it's not going to be the, um, you're not going to be making You might not be making 25 grand a week. You might be making 1500 a week on a writing staff, but if you're working for a show, that's really great. I mean, I, I want to, I want to be in a room where I'm just sitting there looking at the other people going, Oh my God, I'm the idiot in the room. That's what I love doing. I'm like, I'm the idiot. Oh, I get to learn from all these people.
1: And I, I just want to say this. I could be wrong, but I think that people who write for TV are also big drinkers. Like, you know, how novelists have that reputation. And and the reason they are is because it's so lonely and it's really hard to be alone. But you have a little something to drink. You don't feel so alone because you are having a little party in your head.
0: Yeah. TV writers, too.
1: Yes, I saw one out at a museum. I I feel like I should try to say something naughty on your program. This is the best I can do. But yeah, I definitely saw someone who I'd been at his home via some other faculty member doing something else. And I saw him at a museum just knocking back those drinks at like one o'clock, working and reading a book and knocking back drinks. And I thought, ah, TV writing. Okay. Not so different from us.
0: Yeah. Oh, you know, it's funny. A couple few years ago, I went to I went to one of of the things I love about living in Los Angeles is all the opera, all the options to go see screenings and see the writers talk about the films and see that, you know, I love that. You know, I I never liked Bradley Cooper until until my mom was in town and I'm like, oh, I was like, okay, Bradley Cooper is going to be talking about with the star about a star is born, a movie I would never see in my life. And my mom's yeah. like, Bradley Cooper. And I'm like, we can be in the same room as him. She's like, okay, let's go. So I took her to see him. Yeah. And, I, and we went and saw the movie. And, and I was touched by the movie. I was like, huh, interesting choices. I actually, I liked it. I, it's not something I'm going to run out and see, but I really liked the art of it. And then when Bradley Cooper went up there and talked about his writing process and directing process, and it was a 45-minute talk, my jaw was like dropped. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm a fan now. This guy thinks like a writer and a director and it blew my mind. Where was I going with that? I don't even know.
1: That LA is not so bad and not everybody in the business is a drunk.
0: Yeah. It was, I think that's what
1: you're trying to highlight. Like, yeah, maybe I just, or there's just this great, great creative activity out there. You just have to kind of be open to it.
0: Yeah. I guess I think, well, sometimes I realize I'm the asshole. Because I would have never seen that film, and yeah. I just, I blow Bradley Cooper off as just a good-looking fella. And by the way, he's just, he's as good-looking in person as he is on the screen. But when he's talking about writing and directing, I'm like, though, I want to be around, you know, that's the, that's the energy I want to be around. This guy thrives off the juice of storytelling and you could just his eyes are lighting up and he's he's talking like we are and I'm like I've never seen you talk like that you do stupid hangover movies oh okay and you know
1: and maybe there will be a little bit more of there's you know what there, there, are they're definitely these you know we can all you know at default you know be uh you know ashamed of maybe Creating these kind of elitist categories, right? Novelists novelist or nonfiction writers, whatever we are, you know, are definitely see ourselves in a particular light, and we, it's particularly our generation, I think. And then, film writing and TV writing is way over there, right? Uh, I think it was um, Tennessee Williams or who said, you know, just drop uh, the script over the fence you know don't go to hollywood it's a disaster you know it's hollywood has a terrible reputation for novelists destroying them destroying their careers destroying their psyche ruining their lives um
0: and i'm good at that on my own i don't need hollywood to help me destroy my psyche
1: yeah so i think (laughs) and you know at the same time, I don't think like the literary, literary world is particularly warm to people who work in TV who want to become novelists. So they kind of create their own um, little fiefdoms and uh, it's easy to be polluted by that. Right. But I mean, yeah. you know, I feel the same way about a certain kind of realist author. Like, oh, I don't want to hear what Stephen King has to say. Stephen King. I find Stephen King much more interesting as a critic. Or maybe somebody talking about writing maybe than I do as an author. Maybe I'm not interested in reading his books as much as I might be interested in hearing what he has to say about the genre.
0: Oh, Stephen King is my – as far as – I've tried to read, like, two or three of his books, even to 100 pages. And I'm like, I still don't care, you know, when I'm reading the novels. But when I'm reading – I've tried The Shining. I don't care.
1: I loved it as like a 10-year-old who picked yeah. it up at the supermarket. I think maybe you have to be 12 and pick it up in a supermarket where there's no culture. And you're like, oh my God.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, but I love his, I love every essay he writes or even Stephen King on writing. Yes. You know, that that's a, such an important, but there's like three books. I, you know, my, when people ask me, they're like, oh, what, what book should I get to talk about writing? I got this one about how to structure, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, throw all those away Stephen King on writing Walter Mosley this year you write your novel and Anne Mm. Lamont bird by bird that's it that's all you need and then just go off and live a creative life and there's more there's more in there where you know um there's there's a there's a choreographer Twyla Tharp I think her name is who wrote a great book on just the artistic life how to how to how to do what you need to do and still kind of like be a functioning human being and certainly right so
1: yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, there are all these, there, there are different ways to appreciate these artists in different f- formats and maybe Bradley Cooper, maybe you still wouldn't love a star is born, but you love what he has. You love how he embodies that, that life.
0: And well, and he did something. I just remember watching, he did something in a scene and I was like, Oh, he went off book there. I was like, that is intriguing. And it, it kind of blew my mind, the choice he made. And then, I was just like, cool. And then during the Q and a, he's like, Oh yeah, we shot that with what it was supposed to be. And then we realized it, we, we didn't get what we needed. And so he rewrote the scene. They had to call back all the actors to create that one scene where I was just like, what an excellent choice. And what a, what an offbeat way to go on this. And it worked. And it's just, I, you know, I love the technical of storytelling, like this, you know, you get the first draft out or whatever, that's great. But then let's, let's dig into this and let's put the, Let's solder the uh let's solder this capacitor to the to the motherboard and see what happens there. Oh, blew up. I'm, I'm, I'm like a technical guy. I want to get in there and play with it, you know. I, I like those long nights.
1: Oh yeah, I don't know if I'm that person. I'd say no. no. <laughs> <laughs> say no. I enjoy um I enjoy the I think my favorite part of it is when you've got that idea you really really love and you've been working on it for a while and you're sitting down every single day and sitting down is nothing but pure joy. I mean, occasionally you don't know where you're going, but mostly you do. And you just, and, and I love the dailiness when it's part of my life and I'm like deep in it, you know, and um, getting back into it is never that fun. Um, and I find I like, and I like the challenge too of doing new things that you haven't done before, but I would say the editing technical part, mm, that's not my my favorite. I definitely don't mind getting a little bit of help with that.
0: Yeah, it's, I, I think uh, maybe maybe it's been teaching screenwriting for these few years where I, I got to go through these people's scenes and just be like, oh, no, this, this, escalate this, more conflict here. It's like I can see it immediately. And then I go to my own work and I'm like, what's wrong here? You know, <laughs> I'm like, look at it like you look at what you do with your wait, students. Wait,
1: wait, so you need to do screenwriting. Uh, screenplay editing. It sounds like. You're oh yeah,
0: to- I, it's. I you know I gotta write oh, a book on. Good. I gotta write a book on how I screwed up everything in my life and did it wrong. So you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. And you had, like ten opportunities, and you're like, oh no, I can't do that. I'm writing my novel
0: that or yeah. or the other we way around or that.
1: we all do that it's like no i can't like no i really can't like i'm like i can't get into marriage i can't like go out on friday night like i have like 18 things i'm like i can't do that i would have liked to move to berlin and had casual relationships like nelly Zink for 10 years i always suspected that was like a possibility but like didn't really happen for me but then when i read about how nelly Zink lived in berlin had casual sex like I don't know how many times a week. I think once a week would have been fine for me. Um, I think I was to make the perfect life. And then she makes it at 50. I think that's exactly right. But I don't think it's an American lifestyle.
0: So what years was she in Berlin?
1: She's still there, I think.
0: But the, it, but this period where it was. Uh, like in for,
1: her 30s and her 40s. I mean, uh, like the
0: decade. What, what decade was it? Because because uh, I love Berlin. In the. I fantasize about Berlin in the 80s.
1: No, I think this is after the 80s. This oh, okay. is like 90s, the O's. I mean, you know, if we can talk after the wall, like heroes, the O's, what do you call that? The O's.
0: I call it the aughts just to well, irritate people and irritate well, myself. Yeah,
1: that's so British and we never do anything like that. I like to say the O's because I find it like so horrible that I, I love it.
0: It like sounds so off, the O's. It's so weird that in the O's, was over a decade ago. It blows my mind because I I didn't I'm looking back and I'm I've been I got a record player so I'm going I'm going through you know my some of my records that I've actually made it to this point in my life. Uh you know not the hundreds that I've <laughs> like I've lost over the years. But and there was uh there my, well, it was my what it was my friend's band, The Holy Kiss. And I was like, oh and I looked and I and I totally forgot that they added me to the acknowledgments on the record. And I'm like Oh, that's so sweet, and it's just like recorded in two thousand nine. I'm like, what? And I'm like, oh my god, they broke up then. And I was going to see them throughout the, those years. Were so intriguing. From in San, I was in San Francisco at the time. So yeah. But, but yeah. the O's were the O's were pretty cool. I like the O's. I'm going to use the O's from here on out. I like, I'm going to take that from you.
1: Thank you. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. The O's. Yeah, I like the O's because it was like right when the O's were the beginning of like. I don't know, real disaster. You know, it was like when we it's post nine eleven dot com crash. I just think of that and empty skies, and but there was still like a little bit of, um, you know, the shit really hadn't hit the fan yet. I think we're now living in our in, firmly in disaster capitalism, and I I fully expect more disasters, like one after the other, like just to come, like, I mean, I think talk about bubbles. I think we've been living in America and in quite a bubble um, in these cities where we feel that that climate crisis is sort of coming, but not here yet or will be or whatever. I, you just, you know, you experienced the fires last summer here, right?
0: Oh, it was brutal. It was, I'm not looking for this summer uh, because we didn't get that much rain. I'm like,
1: we got no rain and it was oh. worth more than California. I was just up in Napa, which I had been going to since the O's or before the nineties. And um, it used to be like that utopia green rolling Hills. And it's, dry now and you can see you either see the remnants of a fire or the beginnings of oh that'll be on fire and it's it's not going back that's how it is now and that's over and um yeah last summer was brutal and those pictures of san francisco i mean untouchable san francisco right yeah it's like own it's its own microclimate and it was bright orange and you know, uh, I called a friend in Northern California who I'd gone to school with at San Francisco State, and I said, "Is this when we leave the state? Like, is now the time?"
0: Right. I mean, San Francisco had the fog, has the rolling fog come in, and all of a sudden, everyone's got a. That was before COVID, and my friends were had to get face masks to go outside. It was like the it was like the zombie apocalypse with those fires, and then all of a sudden we got in a zombie apocalypse, you know, a year later.
1: Yeah. 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 So anyway, I, I, let's try not to end this on like a tragic note because that's, you know, why do
0: you want to end it?
1: Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it
0: was, what was, uh, what's the, what's, what's, like, what's the like, happiness I'm that
1: you always, wanted? I'm always, I'm always talking about catastrophe. I don't know why I'm so. Oh
0: yeah. Let's let's uh, what you want to do is change the subject.
1: Yeah, because I just feel like I'm I'm the the queen of catastrophe. I just love. We've we've
0: we've been negative. We've had some negativity this this last hour. I think
1: last year was so brutal, but yeah, this year is a little less brutal.
0: I have I'm I have anxiety going out now in a weird way. I uh, it's I'm trying trying to come back into like, a, you know, they call us the, the new normal. But I'm just like, no, nothing's ever going to be the same. It's going to, everything's going to be just a little different, you know? And, but at the same time, we got through it like with 9 11, where Mm -hmm. all of a sudden we had to go through TSA and, you know, spread our cheeks. Do you have anything in your (laughs) anal cavity? You know, and, and it's just, and we were like, we can't live like this. We can't, and now it's normal. Yeah. Now it's just like, we go to TSA, so what? And um,
1: terrorist theater, you know, I mean, security theater, it's just a joke, but, and it just makes, Still mad that americans love that i'm just like they're like well as long as we're safe i'm like you really feel good about taking off your shoes right now well as long as we're safe i'm like really i mean you could put it in an elbow patch come on people yeah
0: it's i, I the, stu- my glasses.
1: The, get, the stupidity
0: get the stupidity of um oh now we'll just check shoes and everything will be fine i i, I think it's just and then everyone buys into it and you're going shoes people and then what? Yeah. one doofus on a flight has a bomb in his shoe. the guy was a buffoon you remember right. that guy yeah yeah, oh, yeah i'm gonna put a lighter on my shoe and blow this up and i'm like oh now now it's a shoe problem but everyone wants to put everyone wants to have a um Everyone wants to blame something because they have to have something concrete and go, oh, it's the shoes. And then it's just like, oh, whew, we're glad it's the shoes. Just look at my shoes. And we'll be fine.
1: Instead of instead of the military-industrial complex, the expansionism, and yeah.
0: – Do you know how much C4 I have in my asshole right now? Oh, God.
1: <laughs>
0: <It's> just like
1: <laughs> – Well, you know, I mean, we – yeah, we have all kinds of issues yeah going back is scary all these mass shootings they happen in classrooms you know <laughs>
0: oh yeah i am i've i think we got a long road of mass shootings ahead of us too why wait well, hey, we're going negative again so so the flower flowers are pretty what else um well i have
1: flowers on my book cover here let me just show this off to you on zoom for those of you at home i am oh. now off the cover of my book which is oh based- pretty Yeah, which is um, based on a photograph my friend Mara Fetter took of me and my mom. And we all went to the only hotel I could afford in Rosarito Beach, um, the Rosarito Beach Hotel. Have you ever been there? It was very expensive and it was what we could afford. The beach was kind of streaked with oil, so you didn't want to sit on it, but it was a fancy vacation from my standpoint. And we took my mom and my friend took snap the photo and we've got lots of flowers. So there Wait, you
0: go. where did you, where did you live when you were in San Francisco?
1: I lived everywhere. There were asking where I did not live. I lived in nine places in five years.
0: You never lived in the Marina. And you never lived in the Presidio, and uh, I
1: lived in the Presidio pretty much on Lake Street, which was right next to Presidio Park. That was uh, so pretty. I would go walk in there when there was a full moon. Yeah. I lived on Lake Street with Mara in the Presidio. So wow. yes, I live in the Presidio. I stayed with somebody in Marina Del Rey for a while, so that almost counts as you mean I the Marina there. district. The Marina district. Sorry. Yeah. But- yeah views than my two cities yeah. and uh i didn't live in fisherman's wharf how's that although i ate crab there but i lived in north beach i lived in uh the, what what is that polk gulch uh, yeah
0: yeah in- that's my, my last place was on polk and uh Geary.
1: yes yes i lived over there and um i was like poke in california yeah Uh, i lived right by the
0: cable car and the lumiere theater i love when the lumiere was open and the cable and we used to be able to commute on the cable cars that was back when you showed your fast pass um and you and and you could use the cable cars to actually commute now you can't use them as a commute commuter you have to pay the six dollars it's like a tourist attraction now so but it's so beautiful to get on there with just, you know, I had to wear a suit to work in the nineties. And so I'd jump on the cable car with a bunch of other people in suits and we just sit there and go across the town. So
1: now, Tony, why were you wearing a suit? Was I
0: was, uh, I worked in, I was a legal clerk and then I was like an assistant accountant. So I was working in these, I was working at these really crap jobs, but at the bottom layer, well, but you had to wear a suit to work kind of thing. It was, uh,
1: yeah, but I, I well, I bet you're meticulous from that experience. You had to be right.
0: Well, I mean, I grew up wearing suits and preaching door to door, so I, I actually had a very good suit collection and I was, uh, I, I already had it set up. I'm like, oh, I could just go to work the way I used to preach. I mean, it was you know, when I was in my, when I was 10, 11 and 12, I was the idiot in the suit on Saturday mornings, knocking on doors in my, you know, school district.
1: <laughs> but I think that preaching and teaching, you know, you know, being able to kind of create a community and, you know, have a stick. I mean, it's, it's kind of a pretty formative communication tool. Is it not?
0: I got a stick. Yeah. I'm going to, that's going to be my new bio. Tony Duchesne. I got a a stick.
1: Yeah. And but your family's like, okay. With you having like moved on from, from the Jehovah witness. My parents
0: are the rest of my family is not.
1: Well, that's okay. You don't want to. It's too,
0: it's yeah too screw hard. screw them all they can all they can all die hard. as the scum they are
1: yeah and also you have to go to all those weddings and presents and, i mean <laughs> it, doesn't it doesn't end it's better to oh
0: weddings and presents keep, it, are
1: keep hard. it small keep it small
0: yeah claire thank you so much for coming on the show
1: great thank you for having me tony
0: claire phillips on drinks with tony check out her new book a room with a darker view Next week on the show, we have Michael Easter, author of The Comfort Crisis, Embrace Discomfort to Reclaim Your Wild, Happy, and Healthy Self. Have a great weekend. Keep reading books. Keep writing books. Keep the faith. Keep sake. For the sake of God, just live a full life. And that includes all things books. I'll see you next week on the show. Thanks for listening to Drinks with Tony. You are... On your radio dial at 101.9 FM, KPCR LP, Santa Cruz.